said with the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies at the University of Kent. Although I've recently partially left academia uh, to work with the Free Speech Union in London as Education and Events Director. But this was only after spending a fantastic 19 years at Kent. Uh, and the most, the most recent 10 of those were working with Ellie Lee, uh, Frank Faraday, Jenny Bristow and Charlotte Fairclough uh, and many other collaborators to develop a new research centre called the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies. Um, and tonight's event is the first in a series of events which will celebrate those 10 years um, where we've really tried to develop a new field of academic scholarship which has tried to understand why it is we've gone from talking about the family or families to talking about parenting and so it's for that reason that I'm really really pleased that our anniversary activities have coincided with Nancy's uh, book um, which we're going to be launching tonight so Nancy McDermott is one of our most valued and consistent collaborators at the center. Uh, hi Nancy. <laughs> um, and Nancy's an American writer. Many of you will know Nancy but some of you won't. So Nancy's an American writer who lived in the UK during the 1980s and 1990s but then moved back to the US and had two sons there in New York and over the years Nancy's work has really sensitized us um, at the center to family and parenting trends in the, U in the US and usually before they really become manifest in the UK and often with disbelief Nancy tells us what's what's happening there in the US and we say no surely that can't come over here and sure enough it usually does. Um, so all I was really pleased about when I read Nancy's book was I thought I knew what Nancy thought and then when I read the book I was just really amazed at just how much she's pushed things further and how bold are her arguments so I really recommend that people read it. The book's called The Problem with Parenting, How Raising Children is Changing Across America and it's published by Prager now so you can all get a copy and I really recommend it. it's very accessible it's not um, it's a really great hybrid of, um, of academic scholarship and then kind of engaging with commentary with popular research uh, and with you know life as it's uh, experienced by us and as it's kind of understood by us through cultural forms as well um, and she really tackles head-on the dissatisfactions of contemporary family life you know why is it that we all feel that family life has become very difficult um, and why does this keep getting represented in, in lots of different kinds of ways? So I'm just going to start things off by asking Nancy a few questions and then um, uh, fairly shortly we'll go out to the floor and you know obviously loads of you can put your hands up and, and please take part and ask questions directly to Nancy, make your contributions, we've got plenty of time so hopefully we'll get everybody in. So um, Nancy I just wanted to start by asking you what prompted you um, to write the book why did you start writing it and, and what was it that you were seeing around you that made you think that there was a problem with parenting right well um in some ways it started just as soon as i had kids um i remember being in an online forum and um and uh parents were trading um they were trading uh, articles from medical journals to decide what to feed their kids or you know how to let them sleep or whatever so I thought that was a bit weird um, but what really uh, I, I suppose uh, brought it home to me was um, when my kids were quite young I became involved um, in um, an organization called Park Slope Parents 
which um, it's, uh, it's, it's located in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which just to give you a sense of Park Slope, Park Slope is like, if you can imagine taking all of the most accomplished um, and uh, uh, talented people in the UK, plunking them all in one neighborhood and saying, have children, and they do, and they have children, and so, you know, you, you're at the playground, and there are movie stars, and there are famous authors, so you have a really interesting group of people, um, and, uh, and it, it was at a moment where it just made sense to have an online forum, um, and that grew and developed into uh, actually almost an, uh, a neighborhood institution. It was kind of became like the place where everyone went to say, hmm, "Do you think I should? Do you think I should bring us bring flowcharts to explain to the kids, to the teachers at the nursery school, why all the snacks must be organic?" I mean, that was a real thing that came up, um, and so so it was, it was a really fascinating um, opportunity to um, for parents to engage with one another about um, the the. Uh, problems they were having with raising their kids and um, and you know uh, the the whole trend for you know trading medical research and fighting about vaccination or um, or, or even just really losing perspective was something that carried on um, uh, in the years that I, uh, well, I, I, I was a member and then I became a moderator and then I eventually chaired the advisory board. Um, and so what struck me was just how, you know, even when, you know, your neighbor has gone off to get the Golden Globe or the Oscar, but they're still having problems raising their kids and they're still um, really struggling with it. Um, and so what I tried to do in my time there um, was I tried to find ways to make it better. And I was lucky because um, around the time that I had my kids, Frank Ferretti had written his book, um, uh, Paranoid Parents. And so going into it, um, I had this perspective that um, this is not just parents behaving badly. There's some new cultural thing going on here. So I always had that kind of to help me to think differently and not just to react to things. Um, and then um, uh, I became involved with the Center for Parenting Culture Studies. Um, and eventually they, they wrote this wonderful book, which is called um, Parenting Culture Studies, which was so good. It was like, you know, deer in the headlights good. <laughs> it was really great. So I, I saw that and I thought, I thought, you know, I'd love to do something like this about the United States. Um, and so that was my idea. I was going to rip off the Center for Parenting Culture Studies and write, in fact, the, the structure's the same, and write a book but based in the U.S. Um, but uh, but the, difference, the difference was, and the thing that I wanted to do a little bit differently, was that um, I, unlike the U.K., I think it's a little bit different in, the, different in the U.S., the family has always been a bit of an issue. And so ever since I was a little kid, um, I was always very um, sensitized to having, uh, you know, family values kind of shoved down your throat or this constant barrage of almost didactic television programming like the Brady Bunch. Um, and even as a kid, you know, I'm thinking this is propaganda. Um, and I, and I, 
I, I, I, so I was very curious about that. And so at a certain point in my life, I was reading family history like other people read novels. Um, and then when I came back here, um, uh, I noticed I had set up a Google alert for the family because I was so excited because I thought, you know, now I can get all these books I couldn't get before. Um, and in about, I would say maybe 2003, it was really interesting because I had a Google alert for the family and I had a Google alert for parenting and the Google alert for the family just stopped. Mm -hmm. There was nothing unless it was like referring to the family fun trap or a, a specific family, but parenting, I had so many things coming through that I had to switch to the digest. Mm -hmm. um, so, so anyway, so I had that in the back of my mind. So when I wanted to write this book, I thought, I want to understand, I really want to go back and understand what is the connection between the family and between parenting. Because it seemed to me that parenting was doing what the family had once done. And so that was what I went into the book with. And that is why um, it is the way that it is. That, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because the, what you said there about the US having a much more explicit discussion about the family than, than Britain um, does really ring true. And throughout the book, I thought that what you've done is really out and developed over time and I do think it's probably it's a bit more difficult to do that in the British context because we often borrow ideas from America because you seem to have a much more explicit conversation about the family and it seems to enter into um, popular culture in a way that it doesn't necessarily do so in, in Britain it might do more recently but certainly earlier on it wasn't so evident um, but what so what is it that you think what is it that parents are struggling with now primarily well, I, I, I think that, um, I think that it's very, that, that raising kids is very much kind of um, focused on the parent-child relationship um, and uh, as opposed to the family, which, well, I guess I should back up a little bit. The family, the family was an institution um, and um, so no matter what you thought, about the people in your family you had this obligation and there was this expectation that the family was going to be a permanent thing um, and what's happened is that uh, is that since the the bourgeois family um went away in the 70s um we now have the child rearing is is now really focused on uh the parent-child relationship but also the way that the people in the family feel um, and so I think that adds a level of intensity um, because it means that, you know, the, the, the sort of success or failure of your child is down to their emotional state and, you know, do you love them enough? You know, are you, are you um, uh, bonding with them? It's, it's, it's very sort of, it's a very sort of lonely and kind of intense thing to be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's just part of it. I mean, there's also, you know, you're bombarded with advice, you're blamed, um, you know, you, you, um, uh, you, you, you're kind of thinking in terms of the next developmental stage and what do I do and will they be all right? And I mean, I talk about it in the book a little bit, but there's this way that, um, that it's like you take the future and the past and you just condense it down to every damn thing you do. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, if I, uh, you know, if I, I let the baby cry it out, then, you know, then later on they will have attachment issues and they won't be able to form relationships. And it's just a mess. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I see. So you, um, you, you do go, I mean, it is a historical book in that you go back to trace the origins and the precursors of, um, of parenting and where that's come from, as you said. Um, and you, you really mount a kind of defense of the bourgeois family. And I find that I can't say bourgeois family without having this kind of lefty sneer, the bourgeois family. <laughs> and it's really interesting to, uh, to, to do what you've done, which is to try to say, well, look, let's not literally throw out the baby with the bathwater. So obviously there has been a kind of radical critique of the conventional family as an institution as being constraining of having these obligations that were highly gendered, that were very restrictive of women, that were very restrictive of people's sexual freedom, uh, and that weren't necess- wasn't necessarily great for children. But you're really trying to kind of bend the stick, I think, and sort of say, look, let's, let's really look at it before we, th- we, we uh, throw it away and accept the kind of trenchant or perpetual kind of criticism of the old ways of doing things as if we're just released from that and see what it is that we're we're kind of um that's being lost here and what's the substance of of the family as it was that really made it work so tell me a bit about what it was about the family the bourgeois family as an institution that you think really worked um well i think I think that um, uh, it, it, well, first of all, it embodied um, these very sort of future-oriented values, which came from the bourgeoisie because, you know, they're an ascendant class. They can't just, I mean, within the aristocracy, all you had to do was to be born and that was it. Um, And the bourgeoisie, they had to live by their wits. They wanted to rise in society. Um, and so they were really focused on educating their kids to be able to do that. But that's because they were thinking about the future. Um, they were kind of moving forward. Um, and I think that what came out of that was a really interesting environment and a really good environment for raising kids because it was protected, um, but it wasn't... Um, it wasn't uh, sort of focused on them in a sense. Um, it was the family was was it was a was like a microcosm of what you might expect to find in society. And so you had this you had this environment where um, you were all in it together. Um, you uh, kids could do kids things, adults could do adult things. Um, you didn't have to worry that you know if someone got mad at you that uh, or if the uh, that that it wasn't going to be permanent. It was this very stable um, environment in which kids, I think, were really able to thrive. Um, And I think that the interesting thing about the discussion about the family now, or uh, the other, they also, they call it the nuclear family over here, which just drives me nuts. I don't like that term at all. Um, It's, I think it's even worse than bourgeois family, but, um, but, but what's happened is that, um, is that when we think about the family today, I think most people are thinking about the 1950s, um, which was a really weird time. Um, because what happened was um, I, there's a very important cultural shift that takes place 
uh, I, it eventually takes place in, in the 70s, but it really begins in America in a big way after the war. Um, and so what happens is that um, uh, the bourgeois values that kind of in, uh, that animated the bourgeois family are beginning to decline. Um, and people are beginning to, instead of uh, seeing themselves as part of a larger common purpose, a larger community, they're becoming disillusioned and they're beginning to think of things more in terms of psychology, more in terms of a single lifetime, more in terms of, them, of themselves. And so they come back from, they come back, they come back from the, the Second World War and there's this real drive to go back to normality. And that drive comes from an insecurity with feeling like all of your values are disoriented. And so what we're going to do is we're going to very rigidly adhere to this form, to the to the to this, you know, thing that we know, the gender roles, the, you know, the the family, the and but it's it's a very hollow thing because those social roles don't mean the same thing that they did anymore. Um, and so by the time that um, uh, by the time you get to the 70s, um, the whole thing begins to fall apart. Nevertheless, um, it still was a very good environment for raising kids. I mean, if you look at things like the opportunity for unstructured play um, and for kids to really develop, you had this time in America where uh, the majority of households had kids in them. Um, and it made it a very child-centered society. And that's why kids could, um, could roam around because every adult felt a certain, um, a, a certain uh, obligation to look after kids. Um, so, so, so I think there's something about the bourgeois family, and it doesn't have to be the bourgeois family, but a family that is about generational renewal there's something about just the way that people are together in a family um, that creates a really nice environment where kids can be kids, but also adults take on, adulthood takes on um, a, a, a new seriousness because you are responsible for this, for these kids. It's not like if you compare it to, say, medieval child rearing, where, you know, as soon as the kid is old enough to walk, he's off with a butcher or, you know, or whoever, and is being raised by the community, you now have a situation where you have a household, and the adults in that household really take responsibility for the welfare of that kid mm -hmm. uh, without um, just narrowly, narrowly focusing on them or you know, trying to get inside their psychology, which is what I think we do today. Yeah. No, I think it, it rings really true with a 1970s British childhood, I think, where I always think of Shirley Hughes' books, where, um, which, which I really love. And although it's a kind of a London middle class, which is not where what I experience, I kind of aspire to those kinds of old houses. <laughs> but in a, a sort of you know, a 60s built estate that was clearly built for families, which was cul-de-sacs with green space in the middle, nothing fancy on it, no playground, just a space that it was assumed that that was for the children to play on, where we bombed around on our bikes all the time with a sort of sense that the mums were at the kitchen windows 
not watching us consciously, but just kind of there. And if you fell off your bike, you somebody would probably come out and pick you up. Or, you know, there was a sort of, uh, which I know Christopher Lash talks about this in more highfalutin terms than me, but that sort of idea, which obviously is based on a, on a gender division of labour, um, of there being women around where the children are and the children are around the home and obviously they're going to school but there's also a sense that there are adult there's an adult community that isn't just the privatized family and then you deliver your children drop them off at the school gate there's a sense that children can walk home together uh, and all that stuff I, which i assumed was completely normal and that was what would happen with my children it wasn't like that when um you know by the time i had kids in 2001 it was so different to the 70s um and there was a sense that uh, I think there was a sense that parents were trying to do something different for their kids than, than they had been brought up. It was much softer, very little physical punishment. It was all very kind of, but it wasn't indulgent in the sense of really adults being so uh, invested in the child's, um, the way the child turned out. There was a sense that you kind, they were sort of a collectivity to children. Uh, and your children were thrown out into that collectivity. Um, and that, that, uh, that's I've often come back to the kind of my the housing estate where I grew up and sort of just worked my way around it with the different families that were there and they were all two parent families there were no divorces and I'm not I, this is why I want to throw it out because I know that people are going to you know respond to what you're saying about the bourgeois family you know does divorce matter do two parents matter you know does heterosexuality matter to all of this what is it that you're really saying here that you think has been lost and what's caused us to move away from a a, a model that did that kind of made raising children something that was held in common between um their parents and other parents and the wider adult community well um I, I mean, it's really it's it's really interesting um, about divorce um, because um, I, I I did a lot of looking at divorce because divorce is the thing that kind of um, uh, is the the catalyst for the the real breaking up of the family. Um, but but uh, but what's so interesting is that what uh, what having a family that stayed together did was it made it possible for kids um, to, you know, just kind of get on with natural growth, if that makes any sense. And there's a, there's a fascinating book, um, which is by uh, Deborah, oh, uh, it's called, it's called, um, it's called The Divorce Culture. And, and, and it's really interesting because what happens is that when the family breaks apart, and um, kids are no longer kids anymore in this quite the same way. They can't just forget and get on with their own stuff. So, so she, uh, Barbara Defoe Whitehead, that's who it is. Um, and, and she does this really interesting thing where she looks at children's literature before and after the divorce revolution. And um, so the children's literature before, everything pretty much takes place out in the world, uh, outside in the community. And then after the divorce revolution, everything moves indoors. And there are some, um, you know, you're isolated and you're even like in, it's in, some of it's almost just always takes place in a room. So it's, it's just really interesting. And I think the stability of the bourgeois family um, basically made it safe for kids to be able to play and to develop naturally and to, you know, socialize themselves. Um, and 
and and the way the way I see it going forward is that I don't think there's any reason why you can't have all sorts of families family forms, but I do think that form follows function. And if your primary uh, objective, you know, with a family is to reproduce the next generation and is, and is to raise kids, then, you know, there are certain forms that seem to work better than others. I mean, it's just common sense to me that it makes sense. It's so much easier when you have two people um, doing it because uh, raising kids because if it's just one person you're having to you're having to take on lots and lots of, diff of different roles um, and that can be you know, just really hard and exhausting whereas if you have a partner you know you can play soft, soft cop hard cop you can manipulate them you know you can you know it just it takes it takes a lot of the pressure off um, so I mean the way the way that I I kind of see it is that if we could find a way to to look and to say uh, you know what makes it possible for kids to develop naturally um, I think that's kind of a good starting point when you're talking about family form um, and uh, uh, and, I, and and actually I think and in some ways I think we're kind of obsessed with family form um, in a way that we shouldn't be I think we should be looking at what is the role of the family. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, there's something else I wanted to say, but I can't remember it, so. Okay, I'm gonna, um, so if people wanna get ready to raise their hands, um, I just, I was gonna ask Nancy one more question and then we'll come out to everybody else. Um, and the question that was, which I really, um, I, I love the point in the book where it, it really challenged me, which was that, you were arguing that um, although we, we tend to think that we're living in a very child-centered world and you know I just think I go to my local pub on a Sunday for lunch and uh, it's like children hell because there's kids toddling around everywhere they're screeching there's crap all over the floor and over the tables and serviettes and wipes everywhere uh, it's quite hard to go somewhere where children are not nowadays um, and it feels like everybody's so anxious about children that our anxieties about children kind of leach into all kinds of areas of freedom so you can't smoke near a children's playground you can't smoke well the proposal was you couldn't smoke you know in a car or um things that are kind of adult freedoms were a sort of uh, feel like they're invaded sometimes by the claims that are made on behalf of children so but you say that we are less child-centered than we think we are and we're less child-centered than we used to be and that actually the good thing about the way the family used to work was that it was very child-centered so how just explain that to us because that seems slightly counterintuitive given the you know just how many things there are that are totally geared towards children nowadays well i i think that it has to do with the blurring of boundaries between adulthood um childhood and adolescence um because i think you know if you have um uh what we have what we have right now is we have the children's ghetto um, and then we have kind of the adolescent pool, and then we have a, a very few adults. Um, and and so uh, so so what happens is that um, just to, just to just as a to, as a comparison, I think 
a, a genuinely child-centered um, uh, society has barriers between between kids and the kids can have their own their own world adults have their own world but then in the middle you actually have um, you have a common life in which children are integrated into that life and they can do so safely um, so if you watch old movies you know you you occasionally I don't know, you have some things going on and the wisecracking kid comes up and says, hey, mister, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And that's just kind of, it's, it's kind of part for the course because kids are part of life um, and integrated. They're not, they're not um, these precious objects who are kind of relegated to um, uh, age-appropriate spaces or who are kind of shoehorned into adult spaces because their parents, you know, won't, um, aren't able to, you know, just know that there are some spaces that are better for just adults. Um, and, then, and then there is a genuine problem with not having a lot of family-friendly spaces. I mean, I can remember, like, traveling and, like, oh, God, where are the, where are the, um, uh, uh, the restaurants where we can take the kids and it won't be horrible? Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, so I think, I think, um, uh, that is, uh, uh, th th that's sort of the, uh, the problem with, uh, uh, with kids not, um, not really being integrated to life. I feel like they're kind of marginal in a way. Um, and I don't think I, just to go back to the family for a minute, now, if there are any zoologists in the house, maybe you could weigh in. Um, but the way that I kind of think of child-centeredness is creating an environment, not, uh, not cultivating kids, but creating an environment in which kids can thrive. So um, to, I, I've been thinking about this in terms of killer whales, because what killer whales do, um, which I probably got wrong, <laughs> <laughs> Marine biologist, <laughs> but what killer whales do, or I think they do, or read, read that they do, is they have um, they have all the calves uh, in the middle of the pod, and then the whales take turns so that the mothers can go down and feed, and then they come back up. But you've got these adults who are kind of surrounding the the baby whales, um, and so it's just like a kind of uh, they're in the center, but it's not like the whales are saying, are, it's not like the whales are saying, now this is how you swim. And if, does that make any sense? Um, child centered. I, think so. <laughs> I, I make Not David Attenborough, but that's. <laughs> well, I, I tried to make a distinction in the book, on, uh, uh, which I have, it, which I don't know if it makes sense, but there, I think there's a difference between child focus, focusedness. Yeah. and child-centeredness because when you're focused on kids all the time then it becomes about you and it's not about them does mm -hmm. that make sense yeah um, i think you make the point in the book that there's a uh, the point where there is a presumption that people will have children that there's yeah. a sense that everybody's heading along the same path and so even if you're not actually a parent at that moment in time at some point you will be and so there's a kind of um, a sense of a, almost like a lateral continuity between people as well as a, um, a, a sort of chronological one uh, where people are sort of heading along the same path. Now, obviously, that's really challenged by people having individual choices that have been really good for people. <laughs> so, um, 
It, the, the, the one other thing I, I remember what I was going to say, um, which is, is the fact that people don't, you know, that, that having kids is no longer seen as this um, uh, incontrovertial uh, social good um, is really interesting because uh, one of the great things that Christopher Lash said, which I stuck at the head of a chapter heading, is he said that socialization um, makes us want to do what we have to do. Um, and I think it tells us something about our society um, that we don't want we don't seem to universally want to uh, reproduce society because I think if we did, um, I actually don't think that there necessarily has to be a huge, um, a huge contradiction between, you know, all the wonderful things that came out of the seventies, you know, particularly for women. I don't necessarily think that, that, um, uh, that those things are mutually exclusive, if that makes any sense. Okay, brilliant. Let's um, so let's go out to the discussion. Should we start with the top of the list then, Jenny? Hi. Um. So, Jenny Bristow. Hi. Yes, I'm not looking anywhere like as glamorous as um, Jan and Nancy. Um, I'm in the dark. In fact, work, Jenny. God, that's a bit spooky. Um, I'm in the garden, escaping from my family. Um. Nancy, I love the book. I, I, I thought it was really great. And I've got three things I wanted to kind of throw at you. One is that one thing that I really loved about the book was the way that you, it was like pro properly interdisciplinary. You drew on everything from kind of culture to psychology to sociology uh, in making your argument. And it really reminded me of some great stuff that was written about the family and generations in the 1950s. Um, where people did kind of take that sort of holistic view of kind of what was going on and trying to make sense of it. And I, I, I kind of wondered why, why that has become so unfashionable now, really. Um, people tend to stick to their silos and it, it, it can be quite frustrating. The second thing was um, you made that point about the nuclear family. You've never liked the concept. And I kind of wondered whether that was where the, the rot started in a sense that yeah, when you had the yeah the ideal type family, which yeah obviously was always flawed, but there was a sense of the family coming from without. Whereas within with the concept of the nuclear family, you have this idea that it comes from within, and that seems to me to be a um, kind of quite a neat kind of uh, road to what we have now as parenting, which is a um, very individualized pursuit. And I thought that was a really interesting insight, given how, you know, unpopular Talcott Parsons and the idea of the nuclear family is now. But maybe it's all a continuum. And my third question, sorry, because <laughs> I really, really like the book, was um, I, you, you talk a lot about the generational effect of parenting culture and um, millennial parenting and, and all of that. Um, but I wondered how much you link that to age or whether you see it as a kind of time thing in the sense that um, is it about people of a particular age who've been socialized into a particular way of thinking about things then going on and raising their children a particular way or is it about I suppose you could call it epochs of parenting where um, you know at particular points there are ideas about how you should raise your children so it doesn't matter what age you are then you um, you you take on that 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 manner of going about it, and thank you and well done. 
<laughs> Thanks, Jenny. I'll take, let's take a few more people and then uh, Nancy, then you can just pick your way through the things you want to respond to. Marin? Um, yeah, hi. Oh, thank you, Nancy. Excellent book. I really loved it. Some great ideas and stuff because I've not got any children, but it makes me think about how this fits into arguments I'm confronted with all the time, especially about contemporary feminism. And there's always the talk about the idea of women having to have, having all the kind of what they call emotional labor. You know, women carry all the burdens of doing the, you know, the parenting, as you would call it, the, 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 the bringing up of the children, the brood. <coughs> so it's always women who have to think about the birthdays and doctor's appointments and making them eat food and all this kind of thing. And that this kind of burden is the fault of, I don't know, a sexist society. But I think your argument seems to be, and this is my question, if you could just put it in the context of feminism and how this, how contemporary feminism does not basically take into account that we, that, that, that the, the labor burden is not to be divided between men and women, but it is a social and the societal labor that we are missing. And well, my, my ambitious question to you is of course, how can we get back to this? Great, thank you, Marin. Um, who's next? Uh, Joanna. Yeah, good to follow on from Marin then. Also, Nancy really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Um, I have a, a similar question to Marin, which is about the tensions between feminism and women's liberation and wanting to defend the best of the bourgeois family, if you like, the ideals of the bourgeois family. Uh, how, I mean, do, you, do we recognize that there are tensions there? Do you, do you think there are tensions between doing those two things? I mean, I guess in concrete terms, I'm thinking particularly about there being far more women in the workforce nowadays. Um, we know statistically in the UK, at least that you've got the same proportion of women as men working with, with more women working part time, but still women are, are more women are working than ever before and, and more women certainly are working full time as well. I mean, how do we defend the bourgeois family and at the same time defend those gains for women? And to what extent does that having those two things um, kind of throw up problems that we might not have thought about in the past. So one thing I think about a lot, I'll, I'll be quick, but one thing I think about a lot is um, childcare and the, the, what childcare means today, if you like. So when, if you go back to the kind of women's liberation movement of the 1960s, the demand for free childcare and 24 hour day childcare was seen as being something quite radical because it would enable women to leave the domestic sphere and, and go out and enter the world of work. Um, but then I guess you had the demand for childcare running alongside it at that point, what would have been a, a very strong family unit. But I wonder whether that same demand made now, um, 50, 60 years on, when the family unit is much weaker, actually becomes a very different kind of demand. Um, the extent to which childcare itself, actually state-funded childcare in particular, seeks to encroach upon some of the responsibilities and roles of the family and um, the extent at which it actually contributes towards undermining the family. Um, but then again, you know, how square that circle if women want to go out to work if you know you, you do need should we go back to nancy well? um get you to respond to some of those nancy because i'm aware there's an awful lot in there so do you want to deal with the 
the gender question. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I think that um, just specifically on feminism, um, uh, it's interesting now because I think feminism has changed. Um, uh, I mean, it's so interesting to go back and to, you know, read kind of what feminists were saying about the family because they were not, not, they became hostile to the family, but, you know, a lot of individual feminists were not, you know, and they, they, um, they, they loved their kids and they loved being mothers. They just wanted to do other things as well. Um, and I think that the, the interesting thing about feminism today is that I think it's become a form of identity. Um, and uh, so you get this awful situation where um, it's like uh, women versus the kids or women versus the family. And this was the, the kind of the thing that, that was really always in the background when I first had my kids, because it was like, um, you know, we, we've all worked, we have careers, and now we're doing everything just like they did in the 1950s. You know, and, oh, what's going to be, I'm losing myself, what's going to happen to me? Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of a, that was, uh, was kind of a, a, a tension. Um, and I think it's, it's, only in, it's only intensified. Um, and I think, though, that there is a way around it, which is, uh, which really touches on, um, uh, I, th I think, more on what uh, Joanna was talking about, because I, I, I don't think there's any reason why um, uh, there can't be um, a, a more equal division of labor um, in the family, although maybe not at the same time. I mean, the, what tends to happen is that women spend, tend to, to spend more time with kids when they're little, and then um, men spend a little more time with them when they're older. But it's, it's really striking because I think most couples today want an equal division of labor, and they find it really, really frustrating that they can't have that. You know, that, um, uh, that, that uh, I mean, particularly with, with things like breastfeeding, you know, how do you divide that up? It's very, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conundrum. And so I think there, there, are, there are kind of two things that could help us to, uh, to, to move on from that. I mean, one is I really think there's a desperate need to talk about fathers and um, to really give some uh, social validation to fathers um, and to the role that they can play with their kids. I mean, it's almost like, you know, uh, there's this kind of, uh, if, you, if you are with uh, parents sometimes and you're just with women, it's like, well, and, you know, and I told him to feed them this and he fed them curly fries, you know, and there's this like kind of disdain for, for men's role in child rearing. Um, and so you need to have sort of a happy medium between like um, a robotic uh, di gender division of labor in your home where, you know, you're, you're, you know everything must be balanced. Um, uh, but you, you need a happy medium between that and between um, uh, just women uh, grabbing all the emotional work for themselves. And I, and I think that's the irony, is that I do think that as much as women complain and maybe feminists complain, often it's mothers who are like, uh, you know, uh, they can't do it properly. Um, uh, I'm the only one who can do this. Um, and so, so there's a, there's a, a, a kind of 
almost like pressure to um, push men away, um, which is interesting when you think about, just to go back to the question of family formation and divorce, because the thing that I've been thinking recently is that uh, divorce can be hard on kids, but I think what is worse is that, um, is that people don't get married in the first place. There's a real cynicism about the role that men can play in the family. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, like I, I, you occasionally, you know, hear women talking about how they wouldn't get married even if they could. Um, and, you know, and they'd rather just have their kids and, you know, and not have to deal with men. And I just think, I think that there needs to be a discussion, uh, a discussion of men. Um, and then just to go back to um, Jenny's really interesting points about uh, the difference between a generational um, uh, effect and, um, and just uh, time and maturity. And I, I, at first when I started doing this, I, 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 I kind of thought um, that, that the thing about just time served <laughs> And having more experience, uh, experience uh, was the thing that was making uh, people have uh, have one view or another. I mean, the way that uh, that uh, childbearing has 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 worked out is that you know you had a kind of mini baby boom at the turn of the century, um, and uh, and so you know you had all these people doing this stuff on mass, and you know most of the people I know have relaxed a little bit. So there's that going on. But then on Parkslope Parents, we definitely have generations, different cohorts of, of generations. Um, and so, you know, you have people who, um, who uh, are younger and have a completely different outlook on, on raising kids. I mean, particularly around things like gender. Um, you know, they, everybody wants to raise their kid gender neutral, whereas, you know, my generation of parents, they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to be too sexist in their parent uh, parenting, but the idea that you would like not want to have gender at all involved uh, it is, is is a very new thing. Um, so, so I think I think both things are going on, and this is why I think I I hope that by um, I I minimizing the interference in the family that I think when you do that, it gives a chance for people to just develop their instincts, learn to trust themselves. Um, and I think that can do uh, quite a lot to kind of mediate the generational effects, if that makes any sense. Thanks, thanks, um, Nancy. One of the really interesting, um, particularly interesting chapters in uh, the second half of Nancy's book is on gender and this kind of phenomenon of gender-neutral parenting, and it's really worth um, recommending to people as well. It helps us find our way through this. I think uh, the current kind of debates about trans, etc. Um, Alka, thank you, thank you, Nancy. Um, Nancy, can I put my hands up and say I haven't read your book yet. I'm waiting for it to arrive. So please um, tell me off if I'm saying something that you cover. Um, I, I, it just seems to, it's interesting listening to you in your introduction when you, um, you mentioned, you know, at one point you said it depends how you see having children. And I must admit, when I decided to have kids, I didn't think I want to socialise the next generation or I'm having 
kids, you know, and, and how am I, you know, for the next generation? I didn't think in that kind of broader sociological way. It felt from an individual subjective viewpoint, it felt that the time was right. And I've been thinking about what, what, what's behind that, that time is right moment. And, for me, and it sort of brings me to perhaps a question of how you feel as an adult in relation to the people around you, in relation to society. So it's, I wonder how far you can talk about children and childhood and the family without also talking about adults and society, because it seems to me that it's sort of, you know, when you decide my generation, I'm generalising, um, but broadly just go with it for a minute, I think it's sort of, when you reach a point where you feel that you kind of you're ready you kind of fit in psychologically you're ready economically and psychologically to sort of take your place in society you know in, in, in a bigger role than just you as an individual when you're younger and you're trying to strike out and find your own individuality it's sort of like when you reach a point where you're okay with your individuality and now you want to join other individuals into into a common life and having children seems to be to me was the marker of of, of of that moment really and I wonder if um the disruption or, or the difficulty in adults feeling that kind of solidarity or that kind of moment mm -hmm. thanks Alka so, um, not socializing um, the question I wanted to ask you though is just could you say a bit more about what you mean by raise kids naturally do you just mean free from too much intervention and interference or or do you mean something a bit more over and above that like whales yeah. <laughs> um so I'll, I'll bring you back in a little while nancy just so we can get through some people so maybe um i don't want to just suddenly rush the people that speak in the last 10 minutes and say you've really got to be really quick but maybe if people can just start to bear in mind that we've got 40 minutes um so just start to maybe get to your questions uh, and also it's completely fine if you just want to ask a question you don't have to you know make a longer contribution if you don't want to so do raise your hand and just ask nancy anything you want to um so, uh, so next on the list is uh, sally okay um i just wanted to go back a little bit to uh the point about socialization and i think the point you were making john um as well about neighbors uh, and neighborliness um, because I just wonder, um, today everything does seem to fall back on the parents, uh, whether they're two parents or single parents or any um, variety of parents. Whereas I think in the past, as you described, and that's my experience also, that there was a whole neighbourhood there to help you raise your children. And I'm just, uh, that the trust... There's two things that seems to have happened. One is that the women are no longer standing there at the kitchen sink. But the other thing is that the trust between the neighbours and between other adults, I suppose, between adults themselves to bring up other people's children and to look after and look out for other people's children in a positive way also seems to have broken down. Um, and I just wonder how that fits into your, um, into your narrative, Nancy. Okay, um, Ella Whelan. Thanks. Um, thanks, Nancy's really fascinating discussion so far, and Jan. Um, it's actually just something that Alka said that um, I was thinking about in terms of what, you know, when you start to think about 
becoming a parent I mean obviously some people don't and they just it, it happens to them but um if when as a woman you're starting to thinking thinking about becoming a mother what is it that makes you at that moment um and I think that part of it at least in the past and maybe this is where it's changed is that it would be a kind of a status you know it would be part of a status thing in a positive way that you would gain a certain amount of a new kind of status and role like you were talking about Alka becoming a parent becoming a mother you become part of a club um but the uh you know the, one of the main ways in which that's changed today which is something that you know Nancy talks about and also parenting culture studies has touched upon in their work is that the status of the authority status of parent uh, at the same time that it's become this massively over fetishized thing has also been completely diminished so it's undermined in a million ways and you know one of the things that Nancy points in a chapter in her book directly to is the obsession with um you know women drinking in pregnancy <clears throat> or or you know how long they breastfeed for and it's completely diminishing the status that you get of the kind of social capital you get as becoming a mother stepping up into the world um and so it's just that you know how do you combat that because it's about um empower you don't want to say that you you kind of then want to look back and sing hark back to something some kind of golden age but that that does strike me as something that's really been lost in terms of that you it's not like you want a round of applause when you get pregnant but you've lost that kind of um, that importance into that the idea that you're playing an important role and should be trusted and should be celebrated um, as someone who's joined the club at least if that makes sense uh, thanks Ella uh, Ellie Lee um, I, I really agree with those points that Ella's just made and I do think it's a, a very um, significant part of women's experience of becoming mothers now um, where there is a, a very systematic belittling of you as an adult um, and you suddenly have absolutely everybody um, bossing you around and telling you all sorts of things about how you should behave and how you should live and how you should think about it. And the chapter in the book, uh, Nancy, on uh, feeding babies, I think is really, really excellent and a really good um, example of it. And I'm glad that's been uh, raised in the discussion because I also think that part of what's going on here in, in the belittling of women is actually connected to the belittling of the family. I, I don't think the two are, are separate things. Um, and one of the things I think that's gone on um, around feeding babies um, is essentially what's been created is this kind of um, really unhealthy nexus between women and those external agencies that want to boss them around and tell them what to do, which is supplanting the proper place in which um, decisions are making sense of this and all sorts of other things about what you do with children should be made, which is within the autonomous family. It should be um, a thing that people work out on the basis of what makes sense with the other children you've got, um, what dads want to do, what grannies and granddads want to do, what cousins want to do. Um, how you feed a baby and how you look after it should be part of that decision making, um, which is understood to be within the purview of those who've got to do it and of course there can be helpful advice around but it should be limited to that and i think that it's a very interesting case study of how that um, simultaneous process of the kind of disintegration of the authority and autonomy of the family and of women's ability to continue to be adults once they have children have actually gone along hand in hand they're not separate things they happen together 
the question that I got for Nancy um, kind of relates to this. Um, in chapter four of your book, where you go into how you would characterize um, parenting culture as a form of child rearing, you describe it substantively as a therapeutic approach or a therapeutic culture. And you characterize that as a culture which is anti-norm. Um, so that's the way you describe it. But you also then discuss how this culture of the anti-norm, which is therapeutic, um, is also characterized by experts increasingly influencing what we do. Um, so a therapeutic culture is at the same time an expert culture. And I wondered if you could talk about that because there does seem to be at first sight um, something a bit contradictory about the proposition that we have a culture which is assuming norms um, and saying that we, we don't know what they are anymore, but then has experts coming in, um, of course, who want to create norms and want to tell us what to do and how we should do it. Um, so how do you understand that relation between an anti-norm therapeutic culture um, and one which is dominating by um, advice and attempts to oversee um, and influence how parents raise their children. Great, thanks Ellie. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, I just wanted to hop down so we've got we've got a man in the group. <laughs> so I thought we'd leap to a male contributor. I'm just joking. Uh, it's, but uh, Matthew Patton, shall we hear from Matthew? Uh, yes. Um, Nancy, thanks Jan. Um, uh, I haven't read your book, so I need to confess to that, but, um, but I am a dad of four. Um, I was a child of the 70s um, and one of five boys in the family, so we were very gender conscious in, in a 70s kind of way. Um, my parents did get divorced in the 70s in, in the way that you kind of described when you were talking. And bizarrely, I am training to be a counsellor, so I feel like I'm in the middle of the therapeutic <laughs> culture myself. So I kind of identify with a lot of what you're saying. One of the questions, the question I really had though was, um, it, it feels like to me, hearing people talk and you talk, that your focus is absolutely on uh, the challenges facing parents and adults um, and the pressures that we have compared to the pressures of what sounded, to be honest, quite like a kind of a romanticization for me of what families used to be like. Um, but I, I, I'm interested in what you think the impact is on children. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in passing things like attachment and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, but the whole point, I presume, of, this, of, of what you're talking about is actually um, not just to have a material impact in terms of the benefit of adults who are within family situations, men and women, fathers and mothers, but also particularly on, on children. So I'm, I'm interested to know what difference your thoughts will make to the quality of lives of children going forward. Thank you. Great, thanks Matthew. Um, let's take Fiona. Thank you. Um, I have to also confess to not having read the book yet. Um, I was just again sort of thinking about sort of divorce and, and family structure and such like. I'm, I'm wondering, um, I'm just wondering sort of how the specific is. I know you're talking about the US, I'm sort of thinking more of a UK context where I live and such like, but I'm just wondering how variable it is between different communities, even within countries. Um, so I'm a single parent. Um, I live in a South London estate where actually I know a lot of my neighbours um, and genuinely people do step in, you know, so and you know, it's also the case that there's often... Uh, 
there seems to be women who are single parents but maybe they actually live with their mother as well um, so there's actually often a, a wider network of people ready to step in um, you know so potentially in some settings um, if you become a single parent but actually other people step in to fill that gap so it's not just all on you um, so I'm just wondering sort of how the specific is and, and so to what extent there's lots of other stuff going on at the same time um, you know not just about families um, you know, so what is, uh, I think, the case for a lot of people is that they're much less likely to have extended family around at the moment. It's, it's perhaps less likely to have grandparents around. I've absolutely noticed that this year. Normally my parents are around in all the school holidays to look after my kids. And of course, with the pandemic, all that's gone. You know, a lot of the informal support networks have just sort of been whipped from under us this year. But I think that's very variable. You know, I live somewhere where there's sort of space outside. The kids can play, other parents are watching, and people step in and, you know, maybe a bit more as people have been describing in the 70s, but that sort of thing still happens around here. But that seems to massively vary between communities. So I'm just thinking, you know, if you've got a sort of contraction of that social support in many places, to what extent that's actually one of the factors that really drives that increasing pressure on parents, because actually if there's no one else around to step in and, and do those things, then suddenly it is all on you. There's a lot more pressure there. Um, and where we do have support networks, I suppose increasingly now it's more like online forums where you need some advice about your kid and you sort of go on and chat to either people you actually know in real life or strangers. But, you know, so it's like there's a sort of virtual support network, but it's more people giving advice, whereas actually what you need is someone just to step in and take the baby off you for a while and, you know, give that sort of practical support. So there's maybe been that sort of shift as well with this is less practical support. So I'm just wondering how we think about what's happening within families as, as being related to some of those wider trends and how they interact with each other. That's a really interesting question, your first one about, you know, if the needs are met within the family, does that make the family too insular, which was a concern of, um, you know, 20th century kind of family discussion, which was that the family was too insular. And, uh, and, and often um, sociologists will kind of hark back to a, a time of an extended family when it was more outward focused or that there was greater involvement from a greater variety of people and that the kind of couple based family is too limited but I think Nancy is saying that there is something really important about that kind of marriage based family ideal um, which uh, you know is I know it's funny is <laughs> in academia that is usually a really unfashionable thing to say <laughs> and people don't even like even using the word family I've had people say well, I don't really think we should use the word family to describe families of any uh, shape or size or form so it's um I'm aware of that this can sound you know there's a very controversial thing it's got all kinds of conservative connotations and, and that kind of thing so um should we come back to you Nancy the other and maybe come back to this question of expertise and um and, and what kind of norms are developed through expertise are they norms at all um compared to these more sort of organically or spontaneously developing norms or even norms that have come from other ideological systems like religion or um you know other kinds of ways of developing complex ideas about human relationships well um i think um uh oh i'm spotlighted <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I think I, I think what's so interesting about therapeutic culture um, is that uh, it, uh, it 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 really has to everything has to be redefined because the sort of highest authority is the self, if that makes any sense. Um, but the tension is that um, we need norms. Uh, to be able to live with one another. I mean, norms serve a, an important practical purpose. Um, and 
and and I, I think what's what happens is that and it actually happens early on as parenting is developing that um, it, it, it that it's seen people feel that they can't look at the past uh, uh, they can't look at past norms because they're inappropriate or or, or today problematic um, and so they have to have something um, and so what happens is that you have you know experts who um, will specify you know what you should be doing in a, any situation um, and that is a real problem in a lot of ways because uh, I mean first of all it's very artificial um, uh, and uh, you know it's 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 there's there's a lot to be said for norms that develop uh, over time and relate to people's real lives as opposed to you know the person who has um, gone off in a room and come up with what they think should be a best practice um, but but they're also very unstable because, um, you know, they're often couched in terms of science and then science changes, so then the norm has to change. Um, and then they're also kind of authoritarian um, because, uh, because uh, uh, there's this tension between things that you kind of figure out for yourself and with your community, um, you know, say, um, uh, in the pandemic, you have your group of friends and you're, you know, you're all going to go to the playground together and ignore the, you know, you know, and kids can not have masks and stuff. And then you have this, um, maybe that's not the best example, but then you have like the authorities come and say, and say, no, this isn't appropriate. And so you have this bureaucratic um, position of social norms um, around child rearing. Um, I, also, you know, I think it actually uh, filters all the way up through um, through adult behavior too. So, for example, um, uh, the discussion of consent. Um, and so, instead of you know trusting people to work out to know you know whether they want to have sex together or not, you have to have this uh, bureaucratically imposed, uh, formalized uh, uh, procedure that you go to uh, in order to establish you know that this is an okay thing to do um uh, and uh, and and it's and it's tough because i think you know when you have uh when you have a, a, a culture that uh denigrates norms from the past um then you cut yourself off from a lot of support i mean um i i thought it was really interesting matthew's comment reminded me of i know another dad um uh of four who uh, had uh, his his daughter had a, a baby, and she wouldn't let him um, be alone with the baby until he had gone to the grandparenting class, um, and uh, because you know she, you know God forbid that he should do something something wrong, and he's kind of like you know I've had four kids, <laughs> and uh, and yet but also you know trying to to respect her and uh, and and uh, and I think that. You know, you cut yourself off from the generations when, from the older generation, when you know all your new your norms have to be new and they have to be scientific and they have to be specified by by experts. Um, and I and I I think it, it's so interesting just to go back to um, Alka's question about socialization um, <clears throat> because. Um, when I started this, I didn't really know that much about child development. So I like spent a year learning about child development, you know, panic, learn about it. Um, and, 
uh, and they, the really interesting thing is that um, is that uh, kids will socialize themselves. I mean, they arrive. You know, we arrive um, as you know visitors to this entirely new planet, and we are ready to learn. And we and kids notice everything, um, and they uh, uh, and they they particularly through play, um, they begin to kind of uh, understand norms and ways to um, to interact with people and you know what it means to be a girl what it means to be a boy just because of things that they absorb around them they don't have to be taught they will do this um, for themselves if they are allowed to play but one of the big problems is that we don't allow kids to play I mean we are constantly into we're constantly looking at kids play with adults eyes um, and, um, you know, so that the little boy who's throwing stand in the sandbox is sexist um, and must be corrected um, or, uh, you know, or, or, the, or these kids don't understand consent or, um, or there's bullying going on. And instead of letting kids work it out for themselves, which is, you know, how they learn to get along with other people, we are, um, we're intervening. Um, we're, uh, we're making, you know, we're getting involved in the playground disputes and the sandbox disputes. Um, we're, uh, we're uh, uh, giving kids this, you know, uh, happy things to say when they're depressed. I mean, we're just intervening in that uh, kind of natural, that's what I mean by natural process um, of, of kids being able to learn. And the horrible thing about that is that when we do that, we set them up to expect authority figures to specify norms for them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like you, you kind of raise a generation of people who are waiting for the authorities to come in and to, um, and to solve the problem or to resolve the dispute or to specify the norm. And so it's this really kind of insidious thing where, um, where the, the, the way the parenting culture um, is, uh, is reproduced is in the way that we intervene um, in children's play and in, the, and in the experience of childhood, which is why a child-focused uh, childhood it's not good because you know we're just constantly kind of stopping childhood and the lessons that you learn in childhood and the work that you do as a child before it starts, um, if that makes any sense. Um, and Nancy, do you mind if I just stop you there? Yes, yes, yes. yeah. Stop me. People are now popping their hands up uh, as we're heading towards um, the last. 15 20 minutes uh shmuel thank you for waiting for so long i we've got to you now okay i want uh, to say uh, firstly i am from israel and uh, i want uh, to say that according uh, to my opinion uh, one uh, general one central uh, resource uh, to development of uh, problems uh, with uh, Parenting uh, this uh, social and economic problems, problems of social inequality, and uh, I want uh, to ask you uh, to expand uh, on subject 
of uh, impacts uh, of uh, social of social and economic uh, problems uh, on uh, development uh, of uh, problems uh, with uh, parenting. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll move on because I want to try and move on a little bit faster through people now. Thank you very much, Shmuel. So. Uh, his question was about the socio socio social and economic socio economic dimensions to this. Um, you know, we're talking about very much as kind of an ideological and cultural phenomenon, but we've talked about some of the shifts in the labour market, for example, involving women. But um, we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's move on through some people. So Jan Bauman. Bauman. Um, Sorry. That was completely fascinating, Nancy, and I'm dying to read your book. I, can I, could you say something about teenagers? Are you saying um, that, from what, from what you were saying, I get the impression that you would argue that teenagers are a very recent phenomenon, only that less than 100 years old, this notion about teenage culture, etc. So would you argue that um, the phenomenon of, of teenageness is not a positive sign, but a sign of the breakdown of the family? Um, and could you say um, maybe a bit more about, you said that it doesn't have to be a, um, you sounds to be as though you're saying it, it, it doesn't have to be, um, you could have your cake and eat it too. We could have a really civilised um, way of bringing up children without it having to be the old bourgeois family, without having to have teenage breakdowns and, and um, etc. So, yeah, but please could you just explain this thing about what you think teenage culture is about? What are teenagers? Would they, would they die out in a civilised um, system of bringing up children. Great, thanks Jan. Um, I'm just going to skip down to Susan Fox who I noticed is um, from Park Slope Parents, uh, old mate of Nancy's I assume. Uh, Susan. Yes, hi and hi Nancy, congratulations hi. on your book. I'm about a third of the way through it. Um, you know you and I have run this amazing online parenting group that has over 6,000 members. And, you know, from an ethical point of view, I have to sit back and question, are we contributing to the problem? Are we actually, it's, we've created this large sandbox where all of the parents are sitting around 6,000 families making the norms of what you should be doing to oversee your parent or oversee your children. And I could go on and on, but it, just a question of how technology is perpetuating the problem of parenting. That's it. Yeah, that's the question I've often sort of thought, don't we just need to talk an awful lot less about parenting? Is that part of the solution? Um, okay, Jennifer Cunningham. Um, thank you, Nancy, and thank you, Jen. Um, natural, you know, children, when, when, Nancy, you used the word natural, um, it struck a chord with me. I mean, we all remember, well, certainly from my generation, which is probably a few generations ahead of some of you, but we remember our childhoods, and those were quite natural in the sense that children left alone use play to really experiment, and particularly when they get to an age where they can play imaginatively, they then work out all sorts of issues and problems that they experience in the adult world. And they can, if you like, in a natural forum of play, 
work out some of these difficult questions of being fearful and so forth. But the point I wanted to make, um, I was a community pediatrician during the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s. And over that period, there were three important things. I work in a child development center and I experienced throughout those decades an increase in paranoid parenting. Increasingly, parents became fearful of their ability to raise children and almost sort of paralyzed in the sense that they needed expert help. They needed advice about how to raise children properly. That was the one thing. The second thing, of course, and it's something that hasn't been mentioned to date, is that during that time, particularly in the medical profession, the focus shifted from looking at social problems to the problems of the early years. And increasingly, as society started shifting the blame for social problems, increasingly into the family and parenting, so increasingly you got that paranoia reinforced, but also you got the stimulus to state intervention because all of those theories of early intervention laid the ground, if you like, for seeing social problems emerging and how people were being parented. And that was the other aspect of being a community pediatrician, that that green light through those early years theories, that everything you did as a parent would have a very fundamental effect on your child in the future, that really fueled that state intervention. And increasingly it became accepted in medicine as in the rest of society, that social work would have an increasing role in policing families. And in addition to that, education would take an increasing role in socializing children. Mm. And so I think, I think that that early years theory really made a very, very fundamental contribution to both the loss of confidence in parents, but also to that state intervention. I'd be very interested. I assume a lot of these things happened in America to the same extent as in Britain. Thanks, Jenny. You raise a really interesting question in my mind there that no sooner have we sort of got some of the intellectual tools to understand childhood better and children better in the, you know, the early 20th century, then we start to we move away from that very quickly to actually being further away from understanding what children actually are and what their needs might be um, by the time we're in the period of, you know, the period we're in now. Um, Chrissy. Hi, um, I'd like to um, dig into a little bit um, the question of uh, what norms uh, what you what you mean by norms? Uh, I was struck by some of the things you said about the the 1950s um, and um, the the um, existence of norms uh, having a, a historical uh, content. So really, the question is: Do norms need to exist across time? 
Uh, and if that's the case, then we're talking about something which is open to change uh, and therefore norms perhaps need to be contestable. Uh, but when you contest norms, that seems to be, from what I'm uh, understanding from what you're saying, something very different from what you mean by anti-norm. So I'd like you to, um, if possible, to try and dig into that a little bit. Um, Okay. Uh, Do you mind if I stop you there, Chrissy? Yes, that's fine. Yeah. Sorry about that. I'm just really aware of um, some more hands. That's a, that's that's great. We'll make sure we come back to that one. Um, Anne and Harley. Uh, it's Harley. Uh, Harley. Again, <laughs> you, you um, mentioned uh, sociologists and their view of um, the family. I've just been reading a book by Emil Durkheim, the uh, father of sociology. He thought families were great because they love you, they feed you, they nurture you, but uh, also that they only go so far. It's not enough. And, you know, to really grow as individuals, you need to get out there in society. That's where you learn to be social, to consider it moral by dealing with others who don't have that same sort of intimate, um, you know, interest in, in your well-being. Uh, fast forward 100 years from now, and loads of people I know uh, think that, uh, you know, will say that family is everything. Um, you know, work's rubbish, uh, politics has gone to, to part, uh, society is horrible, they might say, but at least they can retreat to their own families at the weekends and the evenings uh, and sort of, you know, recover. Um, so is that healthy? I, I, maybe this is just what Nancy's saying, really, but it seems to me that the family has to, you know, to defend it, it's, it has, you have to defend society as well. Um, uh, the point of, you know, families only can work if they're um, part of society rather than apart from it. Great. Thanks, Harley. And then uh, finally, Sharmini, and then I'll bring um, Nancy back in to, to conclude. Hi, Nancy. Um, OK, yeah, it's, it's on this point about socialisation. It's really sort of fashionable in our part of the world to talk about we need a village to raise a child. Um, and it always comes, well, especially amongst the NGO kind of world, um, but it always sounds a bit hollow to me at the moment because um, there doesn't appear to be anything positive around which society um, seems to want to cohere. Um, and most of the social movements we see around, if you think about Extinction Revolution and all these big groups, um, seem to be rather fearful of the future. And so the organization tends to be around, um, you know, um, diminishing towards more isolated units rather than bringing people together. So it's, it, you know, so it's just this thing about uh, we want the family to be more social, but if society, you know, it, it's part of society that doesn't see itself in a very social way at the moment. So that's a huge problem. Great. Thanks very much, Sharmini. So um, I'm going to come back to Nancy. Um, I just wanted to say before I bring Nancy back in is just I really, really recommend that you buy the book. <laughs> um, mine scribbled all over and that's a very good sign of a, a good book. It does mean that I can't sell it on. I'll keep it forever. But um, it, I really recommend that you read it. It's, it's really excellent. And we haven't really delved in at all into the, the second part of the book, which is very specific chapters tracing particular turns in the development of parenting culture, um, which is just fantastic. Um, I'd also suggest that people, uh, well, very strongly recommend that people donate to the Academy of Ideas, which has been putting on events all the way through um, lockdown, which have been a real... Um, uh, lifesaver for a lot of us, mental health saver, whatever you want to call it, it's really helped us to, to keep thinking and stay connected. 
Um, and then also I would uh, say that if people can want to follow up on the work of the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies, I think Ellie in the chat put a link to our website. There's loads and loads of resources and material on there, including um, some special new material that we've commissioned as a, to celebrate our 10 year anniversary. And there's some testimonial videos and just some really nice um, items on there, including something that Nancy's written for us. Um, and then one of our, our next events is going to be Ch uh, Charlotte Faircloth, one of our fellows who is currently working, doing some brand new research, which started at the beginning of lockdown, uh, which is on the effect of COVID on the family. So that will be fantastic. That's the first time she's going to be talking about that, that research. Um, so let me bring Nancy back into, um, you can't sum up, there's so many questions out there, but hopefully that's, that's been a good launch for you where you've you know, had a chance to really discuss your book in, in depth. And um, I'm sure you're doing many more um, events to, to take that forward. So Nancy. Right, well, uh, uh, it's true. There is so many things. Uh, uh, but uh, just to, just to uh, kind of go through as many as I can, um, I, uh, just to, to go back to what Fiona was saying, um, I think uh, one of the things that, uh, that, has, uh, that has changed um, is that marriage has changed. So marriage is about self-actualization. Um, and uh, and what, what that means is that uh, is that when you know you, it's not working for you anymore, you kind of you, you kind of move on. Um, and I, I think that uh, if you contrast that to um, if you contrast that to the way that marriage used to be posed, which was like um, we don't know if this is necessarily going to work out, but we're going to we're going to work together to build a life. Um, and I, I think that uh, I, I think that that has that the loss of that has made um, has made the, the the family more unstable. Um, and uh, uh, and then you know I think it's great if there are people around who can who can raise kids. I think that's ideal. But it's like if you don't have that basic like determination. Um, uh, and future orientation in the family, then I think it can be very hard. Um, on the point that Shmuel made about um, social inequality, I just think social inequality just makes things a lot worse. Um, and in some ways, I, in some ways, I feel like the worst thing that it does is it really just undermines parents' ability to 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 raise their kids. So you know, like one of the things I would like to do you know, after this is, is I really want to spend some time looking specifically at the development of the black family in America, because I think the problems are the same uh, on some level, but they're just intensified because um, it's very hard to uh, raise kids when you are just like marginalized, you are at the kind of bottom of society and there's no way for you to move up. Um, so. Um, but I also think that um, stronger families could make things a lot better um, by helping, you know, parents to uh, to um, uh, to provide for their their kids their kids a bit better. Um, on Jan's question about um, teenagers, that is a really interesting question, um, and uh, I I don't actually have a problem with with teenagers. I I think I I mean I have some. <laughs> But uh, I, I don't think, I, I think in some ways, the fact that you have the teenage years might actually be a good thing. 
um, because you're extending childhood and you're uh, instead of just jumping you know directly from childhood into into adulthood but I think the problem is is that because we have such a weak sense of it of, of adulthood um, you have this weird thing happen where kids are kind of sucked into adolescence sooner than they're ready which is where all this stuff about the sexualization of kids kind of happens um, uh, but at the same time it's like there's no clear way out of that and so you know it you, you kind of end up I think for teenagers they kind of end up having like all the kind of weight on the world uh, of, of the world put on their shoulders so that you know I have to you know I have to figure out my my sexual orientation I have to have an identity I have to you know be my best self and so you have all of these things you know, uh, before kids are really ready to handle them. Uh, and you don't have it, and, and I don't think adults, um, adults make things better. Um, on Susan's question of technology, I think it can definitely be made, can make things worse, but I think it makes things worse in the, in the sense of social media as like creating this window onto the family where uh, where you can't walk around in your underwear and you're worried about what people think and uh, or you're kind of curating your life um, to uh, to please other people which I think is you know teenagers are particularly prey to that and one of the things I say at the end of the book well I say two things the first thing is I I don't know the order I say them in but one of the main things I say is you really need to protect family intimacy and to just, you know, allow your family culture to be um, free from outside influences. You know, don't, sh you know, don't share everything because uh, I think that kind of can be a corrosive thing. But the other thing that I say is you need to find, go out and find an equivalent of parts of because, um, because if it's done properly, and I think we did a damn fine job at Parkslope Parents, where you assumed, you assume that, that, that parents are acting in good faith, you assume the best about them, and you try and help one another, you know, to, you know, to, 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 uh, make, to regain perspective, um, and to, and to give ideas and stuff. That's, that's very different than, you know, than expert advice. That's something coming from your peers, that's coming from more experienced parents, and people like to do it. Um, so I think, I think every parent needs a friendly group of parents to relate to. Um, let's see. Uh, I really agreed with the points that Jenny was making. Um, and I think it is really, it is really fascinating um, about the early years. Um, and I, I have some, I have a, a lot on this in the book, but I think that, um, I think that, that the way that it's been posed is it's almost like just um, it's a way of undermining parents from the beginning, not intentionally, but through trying to help. Um, and um, and it's also uh, it's also given us this weird opportunity to read everything backwards and bring it all back to the individual things that parents do, which you know cannot cannot possibly be true. Um, I, Chrissy, I think the whole question of norms are really interesting. Um, and in fact, in the chapter on gender, um, I um, make a distinction between um, stereotypes and norms because the way that I think of it is that um, uh, 
often with kids, they stereotype things and parents get really, really upset with that. You know, so, you know, the girls go around the princess costumes or whatever, um, uh, because they're just learning about, um, they're just learning about the world. But norms develop through repeated um, social experience. And I think that um, uh, ideally norms develop organically over time. So they can change, they absolutely can change. Um, uh, but I think they need to do it organically. I think that when you, when you specify it, um, I think, it, I, I think it, 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 it just takes it away. It's very artificial. It doesn't, doesn't really function in the same way. Um, uh, on Charmy's point, I just hate that expression you know, it takes a village to raise a child, because in one sense, it's true, <laughs> you know, you do, we do need to take collective responsibility for, um, uh, for raising the next generation, but the village has become like a village in East Germany, um, you know, where everybody's kind of, you know, looking and, and reporting, because, you know, the kids are outside with anyone, and and this is a really this is a really unhealthy thing, and I have some ideas about how we can bridge the gap between that, or between like where we are now and how we might have a real village, how we might have more social validation for um, for raising kids. And I think okay, so this is my wacky idea: um, is I think that it's very very important to try and. Uh, try and popularize the idea of old wives and old dudes um, because I think that there are there are there's so much that experienced parents and grandparents can uh, can be helpful with and you don't you know you don't need to have to listen you know sometimes they say they say bad things but I think that 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 we can create more new norms um, from uh, drawing on the experience of more experienced parents and that, and that there's kind of a chain back to um, to norms that are more sort of I don't know communal, communally based through that and so um, so I, I almost feel like we need like like we need the old wives uh, movement and I will you know I will be a proud old wife um, and you know and try and make things easier for parents and I think just parents need to learn not to be so defensive um, about uh, about the things that they do and to to I guess I, I guess you know part of this is just about um, on a more fundamental level is about learning to trust in kids and this, you know, this goes back to the point that, that Matthew made um, earlier I think this is terrible for kids. I mean, when I, when I first, um, uh, when I was first noticing this, I was all worried about what was doing the women's position in society. Now I'm really, really worried about kids. Um, and it's not that I don't think kids can overcome uh, and can, you know, and can bounce back from this stuff, but I just think we're making it so much more difficult for them. Um, and, um, and so I think we, I think we just need to, um, uh, we just need to, to kind of, uh, take that very seriously and try and help them as, as, as much as we can to, 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 um, to find their, to find their, their feet. Brilliant. Thanks. Nancy's going to stick around, um, online for a little bit. So if people want to, um, 
speak to Nancy and uh, ask her questions. I'm sure she would be amenable. Uh, oh, and thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> and for God's sake, put a review on Amazon. I have no reviews on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and I can sort it very easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I can invite, I'm going to mute everyone and then unmute us and we can give Jan and Nancy a clap for a really amazing, brilliant discussion. So please join me in. Thank you, Nancy. Jan. That was really brilliant. Really brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I just, uh, by way of announcement, if you review Nancy's book on Amazon, yes, and read um, Jan's review, which is in Spiked, Ali's posted a link to it. But if you are going to buy Nancy's book from Amazon, um, if you can use the link that I've sent, which is a link to Amazon's file, through which you can, your, do your purchase gives a donation to the, battle, the BOI charity. Um, which is just a small thing but it helps us so buy Nancy's book do it through smile Amazon smile the links there um, and tell all your friends so this is the point at which in the book launch we'd usually have drinks and cheesy snacks and chat so let's try and do this online so far away everyone you can unmute yourselves and we'll leave this open for another 15 minutes and thank you again Nancy and Jan. thanks Ella thank you very much for doing that thank you